0: Romans chapter 3. What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar. As it is written, So that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, Let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is just. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious of our sin. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be just, and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is He not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there's only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Thanks, Steve.
1: Thanks very much. Um, I really appreciate Elizabeth um, raising about British um, detective stuff this morning because um, she really nearly stole my thunder. Um, Carl gave me a lead-in last week. He was talking about Vera and Poirot and that, and I, I discovered there's a lot of people who are ignorant of, of these things, and I thought, they, these people need an education. Um, need to be brought up to speed with some of these things. So um, I should have a copy here. If, if the guys are paying attention, just put something up on the screen for us. David Suchet. Oh, look at that. That's Perot. Anyone recognise him? Put your hand up if you've seen Perot. Ah, oh, yes, radio. No, Chris is shaking his head there. No. <laughs> All right. Some refuse. I know. I know. But. There's an interesting thing about this guy, David Suchet. He's a Christian. And he became a Christian through reading the book of Romans. I've got a a couple of quotes here. This is from an interview. "'At the time I was in Seattle making a film, "'I was lying in the bath in my hotel "'thinking about my grandfather.'" Why he would do that in the bath, I, I don't know, but apparently he thought a lot of his grandfather.'" And he remembered thinking to himself, isn't it interesting that I feel my grandfather is with me, even though he's dead, yet I don't believe in an afterlife? So I went straight out and bought a Bible, hopefully got dressed first after his, his, his bath, and went out, bought a Bible and read Paul's letter to the Romans. By the end of the letter, I had seen and read about a way of life to which I wanted to aspire I thought this is what I've been looking for all my life but then I had to study Christianity because I couldn't just accept it on face value I've never had blind faith in anything so he's he's a thinking guy and he's he's thought things through and for him the book of Romans was instrumental in coming to a saving faith In Jesus Christ. So, Romans is a good book to read. Let me encourage you that uh, if you get the chance, read right through the book of Romans. It won't be easy bedtime reading, but it'll well repay, well reward the time that you spend sitting down and just digesting its contests and working your way through. From beginning to end, I've found that to read Romans and follow its ideas through in a spiritually fulfilling and satisfying way, I have to be in an alert frame of mind. It really does require my full attention. So, I'd like to encourage us today to to gather our thoughts together, gather our hearts and our attention. Let's look at Romans three. Two Sundays ago, we saw in chapter 1 that all Gentiles, that's non-Jews, fall short of God's glory. They've fallen short of the glory of God. And last week in chapter 2, we saw that the Jews fall short. So whether you're a Gentile or a Jew, you don't measure up to God's standards. That includes every single one of us in this room. Now in chapter 3... There's a wrapping up of the case that all have sinned but it leads beyond just the sense of well, I really need to know about that. You know, I'm a sinner. It's, It's leading us beyond the bad news into the good news of how we can have a relationship with God. How we can come to know a God who is angry With our sin, angry because of what we've done, but loves us too much to just let anger be the final word. His final word to us is that you are valuable, and you will see this coming out in Romans three. And turn with me in your Bibles. Let's have a look. There's a whole series of questions that that Paul proposes, if you like. Most of this chapter is like a dialogue between Paul and an imaginary Jew who raises a number of interlocking questions, accusing him of gross inconsistency and even lying. Now, whether it's an imaginary Jew or the old Paul and the new Paul, because he, you know, is a trained Pharisee, he knew the line of thinking. He was familiar with that sort of reasoning And he knows that whoever is reading this letter needs to understand that what might appear from what he's saying to be the case in in certain ways is not necessarily so. He needs to correct some things. So he deals with these objections one by one. And the very first thing he does is to answer this question, well, what advantage then is there in being a Jew? What value is there in circumcision? It's it's like he's saying, okay, well, what's the advantage of being born Jewish? And what's the point of being circumcised if they're actually no better than the Gentiles? What's the point? Why bother? And he, he says, look, there is much value even though they might have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, just like the Gentiles have, yet they have been privileged by God. And through them, through the Jews, have come to us, to the world, the very words of God. So that's why he says, much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. And it's... it's. Like he's just giving a little pointer forward to down the track in the letter, in chapter 9, we, we come across this. And this is what he says about some of the advantages of being a Jew. He says theirs is the adoption, verses 4 and 5 of Romans 9. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah who is God over all, forever praised, amen. So there's many, many advantages. We could probably summarise it in this way. It's like the Jews have the privilege of being born with a silver spoon in their mouth, born into privilege, born into aristocracy, if you like, where money's no object, where power and influence are at their disposal and they can... Uh, find a way to realise their dreams and ambitions in a way that most of us can't. It's like they're off to a flying start. I'm just using a human analogy in this. They have these privileges, they have these advantages and if, if they were born with, so-called, with this so-called silver spoon in their mouth and the world has resented them ever since for it and the Jew grows up being instructed in the Torah then they actually have a definite head start in life. There is a foundation to build on with the gospel of Christ. So we think of Proverbs 9, 10 and 11. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. For through wisdom your days will be many, and years will be added to your life. So the Jews are off to a flying start with that if they pay attention and listen. They've got the advantage of knowing that the source of their scriptures is true and accurate and leads to a right and proper knowledge of God. So. While the rest of the world was consulting mediums and sorcerers or vainly looking to the stars for guidance or ignorantly worshipping sacred cows and pursuing false prophets or engaged in child sacrifice and, and prostitution, the Lord was appearing to Moses and giving his law, establishing a kingdom of priests who served him by a calendar of divinely appointed festivals pointing forward to the hope that we have in Jesus. Theirs is the covenants, theirs is the scriptures, theirs is the prophets, theirs is the patriarchs, theirs is the privilege that they were born with and would have grown up with. God was making every hill low for them and filling every valley as he prepared a highway in the wilderness pointing them to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then Paul anticipates some objections to this. He says, well, what if... What if?" They were unfaithful. These Jews we know that that they were unfaithful. Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? If they were born with this silver spoon in their mouth, but they prove to be unfaithful, well what benefit is it then? Is it what's the point? Surely it just nullifies any benefit. And he's saying, Okay, if the Jews were unfaithful to God with the privileges he gave them, surely that must counteract God's faithfulness and upset the apple cart of salvation, if you like. Paul again shifts the focus from Jewish or Gentile or our insufficiency to God's all sufficiency. He's taking the focus away from whether you're faithful as a Jew or not faithful as a Jew, faithful as a Gentile and, and having circumcision counted to you as if it was circumcision in the flesh when it's of the heart. And he's just dealt with that at the end of chapter 2. That, that if you know the way of the Spirit, then you are off to that flying star. But in the end, it doesn't hinge on how good we are how perfect we are, how faithful we are, it hinges on the faith of Jesus Christ, the obedience of Jesus on our behalf. Have a look towards the end. He starts to move after he's given this litany of scriptures one after another, quoting all of sin, you know, there's none righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks God, all have turned away, together they become worthless, no one does good, not even one. He's just mounted up out of the Jewish scriptures, evidence after evidence after evidence that the Jews have fallen short And then he says, therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law, rather through the law we become conscious of our sin. So yes, we do learn about failure from the Jews. We also learn about failure from our own life, our own failures, our own mistakes. But, and that's the crucial word, verse 21, but. Now, apart from the law, besides the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. Look at what he says. Verse 22, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, whether a Jew or a Gentile. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Wow, there's hope. So, yes, the Jews have an advantage when it it comes to privilege with the things of God, but no, it doesn't help them one iota when it comes to the power of sin in the human heart. They're just as powerless as anyone else. Knowing about God doesn't necessarily enable you to walk the right way and overcome the power of indwelling sin. You talk to any Christian who studied their Bible and yet had to wrestle with temptation and fall and fail. You talk to anyone who who is trying to live... A godly life, say, in a godly marriage, and yet struggles to really honour and love their, their spouse as themselves. Or anyone trying to raise children. You know, do not exasperate your children, fathers. Yet how often, how easily that can happen. Or in a work situation... We know we're to obey the governing authorities. We're to try to honour honor the boss and do the right thing and yet he just or she just gets under our skin and we find ourselves struggling big time. That is the power of indwelling sin. You've tasted it. That is what all struggle with, Jew or Gentile, privileged or not. We all contend with that force what he calls later on the law of faith and the law of sin and he's saying the solution to it is not to try harder the solution to it is not to say oh and beat up on ourselves and say lord help me to overcome there there is don't get me wrong i'm not saying we shouldn't be remorseful for sin i'm not saying we shouldn't be sorry and convicted we should be but the solution is to look at jesus the author and finisher of our faith, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, the one from whom faith comes and the one who will mature and grow our faith. Look to Christ. He's the source of our hope. He's the source of our righteousness. He is all my godliness. He is all that I have before God the Father. He is all my righteousness he is all my strength. In, in, his strength is made perfect in my weakness. When I taste the power of indwelling sin and I get convicted yet again of falling short and find that I'm, better, I'm no better than anyone else who lived before me or who live after me, instead of despairing and getting suicidal or instead of trying to just fill my life with happy things that will sort of placate the sense of emptiness, I, I, God has taught me by his grace to turn around and look to Jesus He who's begun a good work in you will complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. That's the walk of faith. And that's what this chapter is about. Although we fall short, God is faithful. Even though there are privileges, it doesn't nullify the power of indwelling sin. And even when you're unfaithful with your privileges, it doesn't knock God off track with his gospel plan and it won't necessarily be a permanent failure for you if you will just admit your sense of failure, if you'll come to your senses and just say, I can't do this Lord, I'm not good enough and you look to him then you'll join that great chorus of saying, yep, I'm part of the non-righteous. Yep, I'm part of the all who've turned away. Yep, I too have fallen short. But also, yep, I too am included in the cross. I too have an interest in the Saviour who died for me. I too qualify to have a Redeemer. I too have the strength and the hope and the life that comes from Christ alone. And that is grace. That is because of the mercy and the goodness of God alone that just removes all boasting. He says, verse 27, Then where is boasting? It's excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? (laughs) No, you're on a hiding to nothing. If you head down that track, you can't do it. It's just, it's just failure after failure. Have a measure of success and then sure as eggs you'll fall short. No, because of the law that requires faith. God requires faith in his son. It has to be that way for the gospel to work. Think about it. If, if Christ came as the sinless, spotless son of God, As the perfect substitute, what elsewhere in the New Testament he's described as the new Adam or the last Adam or the second Adam. Where the first Adam failed, the second Adam Jesus Christ obeyed. Where the first Adam succumbed to temptation in the garden, the second Adam overcame in the wilderness against all odds, having fasted for 40 days and nights and being tempted by the devil, just like Adam and Eve were tempted by the devil but he overcame. And, and when he was baptized, he, this, the spirit descended upon him and, and this testimony echoed out, for anyone who had ears to hear, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, listen to him, look to him. If I, if I be lifted up, From the earth I will draw all men, all women, all all Jew and Gentile to me, all who will have ears to hear the bad news of their sin, but the good news of the Spirit saying, come nonetheless. Come to me, all you who are weary and are heavy laden, and I, Jesus, will give you rest. That's the hope of the gospel that 's what it means to have righteousness with God, and it 's received by faith, not by a self effort not by it 's not something we um, receive as a reward it 's something that we receive as a gift it 's not merited or earned or deserved it 's provided by God himself because we could not provide it for ourselves. it was beyond us so the point of all this string of quotations is to hem us in, hedge us in and bring us to this place of saying, I'm trapped, I've got nowhere to turn and the only place to go is to look up. I need help from on high. I need need a saviour who can do what I cannot do for myself. And it doesn't really matter what way you fall short. Whether you fall short in a gross way through murder and mayhem, rape and adultery and pillaging... Or whether what we say in little ways by exaggerating or lying or self-importance and self centeredness and just uh, trying to make yourself the centre of attention or being ignorant of other people's needs and just going about your own life to fulfil your own happy desires. It doesn't really matter whether you fall short by, by an inch or a mile. It doesn't really matter whether you fall short as a Gentile or as a Jew, what really matters is that you realise that you fall short and you come to the place of saying, Lord, I need you. Every hour I need you. You are my hope. Apart from you, I have nothing on this earth that really merits anything for me. It's going to be like, anything else is temporary. Anything else will fail me. The arm of flesh will fail me. The efforts of human beings will not be good enough. Even in marriage and our our dearly most loved partner or spouse in life, death will part us one day. But the Lord will not desert us. Neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our lord this is all the build up that that Paul's working his way through br- introducing us to this initial phase of understanding when you've got the bad news then you're in the best place to receive the good news and until you've really understood how bad it is you don't really need how desperate your need you don't really understand how desperate your need is until you understand that, then you're probably going to keep trying and battling and failing like a an addict, just in this endless cycle. And boasting's going to be excluded because in the end it's all of God or nothing. He must do it, you must save, and you alone. So this is where Paul reveals that supreme wisdom and grace of God. In, by chapter 11, he comes to the point, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Only God would have conceived of a plan to take a Gentile, Abraham, turn him into a great nation give him covenants and promises and prophets and and seers and festivals and feasts and and turn him into a great nation, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, and then through his failure actually bless the whole earth and provoke uh, in the end that very same group back to envy and faith in Jesus because they see so many Gentiles coming to faith. Only God would come up with a plan like that. He couldn't do, we we wouldn't come up with a plan like that. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. And friends, we can take such encouragement that God is more than capable, more than able to take our most stupid actions in life and, and make them work together for good to take our failures and our, our all kinds of things and to, make them, and to weave together in his tapestry of hope and life through faith in Christ Jesus, a way of blessing and ministering to others, maybe someone else in the same boat, and you've, you've stood where they're now standing and you know there is hope. Or, or it might be that just your heart has been so humbled through God's goodness to you, you, you'll, you just never forget to listen to the needs of others and be open to hear from them. Because you know that stinging sensation deep in your being of being a failure, of being not capable, not able to please God. And seeing someone else struggling with that very issue, you're in a great position to point them to Christ and say, Jesus is your answer. And, and not to do that in just a trite way, but a deeply meaningful way, a helpful way. So you might be strugg- struggling with marriage breakdown. You might be struggling with financial breakdown. You might be struggling with who knows what. But God is able to do more abundantly than we ever ask or imagine. Where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. Where we have fallen short, God is quite capable of picking us up and restoring us because he's done it once and for all through Jesus by raising him from the dead. He is our hope. This is the gospel. And without faith it's impossible to please God, for anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. So let's pray for God by his spirit to work in our hearts a a sense of deep yearning that turns our sense of hopelessness if it's there or a sense of despairing over a particular issue into looking to him, looking to Christ, looking beyond ourselves, outside ourselves, upward to where our real hope comes from, from the Father's right hand. Let's pray. God, we recognise deep down that we are a broken people. Truly broken, Lord. Somewhere deep inside of all of us, if we're honest, there is something unsavoury, something inadequate, something that doesn't measure up. And yet, Father, that's thankfully not the whole story about ourselves. That you are a God who understands that all too well. You've given us your law as a boundary marker to keep us away from these things that would cause us so much damage and harm. Yet we've, like, a, like sheep, we've gone astray. Like a disobedient child, we've, we've just disobeyed our Heavenly Father and done our own thing. Yet you have not given up on us. You will not give up on us. We thank you that you so loved this world, you gave your one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Lord, blessed be your name. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the hope of righteousness through faith in Jesus. Thank you for the gift of faith. It's not of our own doing. It's the gift of God, lest any of us should boast. So thank you, Lord. And I pray that if there's anyone here, particularly this morning or during this week, who struggles big time with something along these very lines, that you might remind them of the message of hope, that you will bring hope in the midst of despair, a shaft of light to pierce the clouds of darkness and bring them home to you where we all belong, Jew and Gentile, level at the foot of the cross. In your name we pray. Amen.